Welcome to Investing with IBD, sponsored by Smart ETFs. It's Justin Nielsen, your host, and it is January 19th, 2022. And as always, joining me is Arusha Paris, a portfolio manager at O'Neill Global Advisors. And we are very pleased to also welcome Jared Tendler. Now, Jared Tendler is a mental game coach. Uh, he's also an author. Uh, he has a number of books out uh, on trading, on poker. Uh, some very interesting topics that we're going to talk about today. And then, of course, uh, after after Jared gives us a kind of uh, talk about the mental game of trading, he's going to leave us and Arush and I will talk about the market and go over some stocks that are looking interesting or maybe breaking down. So, uh, Jared, welcome to the show. Guys, yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. It, it's great to be here. So, first of all, I guess we should start out with what the heck is a mental game coach anyway? Uh, I mean, besides just me. Just, um, yeah, yeah, just me. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Your picture shows up in the dictionary, and that's yeah, the definition right there. <laughs> Noun. <laughs> uh, so, uh, when we're talking about high-level performance, whether we're talking about trading or poker or golf, we're talking about uh, the mentality that's associated with what it takes to be successful. And a lot of people talk about trading psychology or golf psychology, poker psychology, and to me, that doesn't sort of imply the game elements to those, those endeavors. So a mental game coach is basically somebody who is looking at what it takes for you to perform at your best consistently and more pragmatically for traders, looking at the uh, emotions that affect your decision-making, the, the, the issues like fear, FOMO, greed, anger, uh, those types of issues are the kind of the bread and butter of what I'm trying to solve. Yeah, so, so we all know that trading it can be very emotional. Um, so how do you help people manage their emotions? Because a lot of times, you know, it could be a reaction to a, a, a bad trade. It could just be uh, that they're not, they're not analyzing stocks uh, well at, at that point. Is it, is it more a skill thing or is it a more of a kind of emotional thing? It's, it's both. I mean, I think we, so the mental game really is about developing skills, um, you know, but there's also a big bit about like kind of problem solving. So, to me, management of emotions is sort of the wrong way of viewing it. Mm -hmm. um, if you're managing a problem, you're kind of trying to like work around it. And eventually what's going to happen is it's going to fail, right? Your management system is going to fail because the emotional system is more powerful than the part of the brain responsible for controlling emotions. And so if the fear rises too high, if the greed gets too intense, you are going to violate your rules. You are going to enter in spots. You're going to let something run well beyond your risk parameters or your your, uh, your your target says to take profit. Um, and so you can't kind of manage around those problems indefinitely. Um, and so the, the, the real crux of what I try to do is understand why the problem even exists in the first place. And when you start to ask those kind of why questions, you get at some deeper reasonings. And for me, it doesn't have to, we don't have to get personal, right? Like sometimes, yes, personal issues can bleed into trading or issues that started early in your life can still be kind of reverberating now in your trading, but, but for the most part, we're dealing with what I call these performance flaws. And the performance flaws are the real problem. They are what cause the fear, the greed, the FOMO, the uh, anger and confidence issues. So issues like high expectations, which is incredibly common, illusions of control, confirmation bias, expecting to make money from every trade or every day, uh, illusions of emotional control, right? These performance biases or wishes or illusions they are the real problem. And to me, my primary job is to help traders to actually be able to sort of 
read the tea leaves of their own emotional volatility, right? So we look at the way that they react to a particular setup or a situation and see, you know, the thoughts that go through their minds, the, the reactions they have emotionally. And we understand what those signals that those emotional and mental signals are saying and, and, you know, kind of figure out the flaws behind them. So in, in some ways, it's almost like you're coming up with, it sounds like you're coming up with almost like emotional indicators, you know, that people can use for their trading. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, I, I, you know, what the mental game of trading is designed to do and what my work is designed to do is to create a system for understanding how to solve mental and emotional problems. And that system is very much like the systems that traders have to actually make trading decisions. And so, you know, I'm like, we've made incredible strides in the trading psychology industry over the last 20 years. My opinion of a lot of the material, which is very good, is that it sort of fits into the category of like really good advice, really good perspective, really good kind of concepts and ideas, but it's not as systematic as my material is. And that's kind of the big differentiator. So, you know, I think there's a lot of awareness about trading psychology. There's a lot of knowledge for that. But, you know, I actually did some research uh, in a survey last November and found that, you know, 95, 96 percent of traders, you know, recognize the value of it. They can see problems in real time, but only 34 percent have a system to actually, you know, be able to manage and control their emotions in real time. And that's that's kind of where my my work kind of fills that gap. So, yeah, it is emotional indicators, you know, and then the question is, like, what do you do with that indicator? And that's mm -hmm. that's kind of the, the meat and potatoes of what I do. Yeah. And how do you come up with that indicator in the first place? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and that's it's, it takes a lot of studying. Right. So, you know, I call it like a mapping of your pattern right? where you actually take time in real time, sometimes writing down what the thoughts are that, that come up in, in a particular moment. So the thought might be, uh, oh, you know, I see everybody else making money and I'm not. So, you know, F it and I'm <laughs> going to jump right in and join along. So you're kind of mapping the, the, the specific thoughts that you have. You know, a lot of times traders think that negative thoughts are negative. They're not negative. They're just sort of coded that way. They're they're only negative because they end up leading to, you know, kind of bad behavior, big mistakes. But if we can understand, you know, kind of what's behind them, then you can kind of deactivate them. So, you know, write down what those thoughts are, write down what the emotions are, write down what your actions are, write down what how your decision-making process changes, how your perception of the market changes, how the perception of your own system or your risk parameters change. You write all, that all down and then start to kind of study it trade over trade, day over day, and you are able to create that, that emotional indicator that can become predictive. So you can identify kind of the early warning signs, that tilt, that anger, that fear is coming because you see, sort of can see those, those early warning signs. Let's try to make it a little bit more concrete for some of the, for a lot of the, the listeners out there. Now, everyone experiences the emotion greed. You know, when you talk to clients who are, yeah, really, maybe this is one of their major problems and they're trying to resolve it. How do you walk them through trying to first figure out that it is this emotion of greed and then how do they kind of get past that? So first thing we do, we do is kind of zoom into the mistakes that they're making, right? The, the actual, so, you know, greed is, you know, not usually going to close positions. It's going to be, right, you're trailing your stop when you shouldn't be, you're, uh, you know, uh, letting things run too long, you're jumping into positions that you shouldn't. So you're kind of looking and zooming into those specific mistakes as they're happening, and you're trying to kind of peel back the layers to identify the specific data that I was just talking about. So, for example, you know, uh, one client when we were beginning to do this process, you know, he noticed the very, very first sign of greed for him was when he started to think about the utility of money. Right? It no longer became about the percentage that I could make here. It was no, I I could make two K, and that two K has the utility of X, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and Y. 
you know, I mean, and that's a different emotion, but yeah, you, you just start, you make it a lot more real and, and actually it's going to become much more emotional versus a percentage, right? It does. And especially, you know, so we, as we kind of keep walking through it, right? So as that money accumulates, his attachment to that money becomes even more so. And so, you know, then there, be, there can become some of the fear, right? That's why people often talk about greed and fear together because, yeah. you know, one sort of swings the other. Now, I think it's a lot more complicated than just that, but you know, so as we're walking, walking through identifying, you know, those additional signals, you know, then he starts to think about, um, you know, the, the sort of the personal nature to it right now, there's this feeling like I need to make this money in order to sort of validate my, my competency as a trader. Now, the thought in the moment isn't necessarily always that, but when you start to look at like, all right, well, why do I care about making a massive return in this particular trade? Like, why am I going to die on this hill? Right. Mm -hmm. Trying to squeeze out, you know, a, a four or five bagger when it really is actually, you know, probably going to scratch if, if uh, you know, at best, maybe a three bagger. But the point is, right, you start to look at what what that that impulse that that greed is kind of driving towards. And for some traders that are still kind of trying to prove to themselves that they're capable of hanging or, you know, maybe 2021 was not that great of a year. You know, 2020 was sort of, you know, everybody printing. 2021 was a little bit tougher. Right. So, you know, if, if you're trying to kind of prove that you still have it, right, that impulse can come, you know, in a form of greed. And it's not about greed per se. It's really about, you know, you trying to prove yourself. It's actually more about confidence than, is it, than it is about greed. Well, and you mentioned the, the term high expectations sometimes or maybe unrealistic expectations. So uh, it seems like a lot of what you're talking about has to do with that. So could you kind of get into that concept more about how those expectations and, and that illusion of control that you mentioned uh, maybe get traders into trouble? Yeah, I mean, I, I will be the first to admit that high expectations in and of themselves are not bad, right? They, they are incredible motivators, right? And some of the best traders, some of the best athletes in the world have very high expectations themselves. The problem is for a lot of people that don't have a mastery of their emotions, high expectations can cause frustration and fear and confidence issues if you're not able to properly manage them. So for that kind of group of people, we look at trying to convert expectations into goals, right? The idea is not to lower your expectations. The problem is that expectations imply a guarantee. When you're saying, I expect to make money from every trade, which a lot of traders won't admit to, but when they start to kind of really look closely, the impulses kind of connect to that. When they expect themselves to make X amount of money, you know, in a year, they're not saying that's what they want. They're basically saying and implying that that's what they guarantee because mm. a goal can have the same kind of motivation. You can have the same degree of motivation towards, you know, that, that, that outcome. Um, but when it's an expectation, it doesn't really kind of account for the ups and downs that you're going to go through. It doesn't care about the learning that you're going to go through. It doesn't care about the, the steps backwards that are, are somewhat inevitable. Goals appreciate kind of that dynamic process. And if you're expecting too much of yourself, when you make a mistake that you think you shouldn't have, you're going to get pissed off. When you lose a trade that you expected to make money on, you might get pissed off. And then if you might get so pissed off that you might then break your risk parameters and then make a lot more mistakes. And then over time, as that continues to happen, and there's a lot of self-criticism that gets built up as you berate yourself at the end of the day, you can actually start to fear right, making a mistake because now you fear not the mistake per se, you fear the inevitability that comes with, uh, you know, with the anger. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a little, what I call like beaten dog syndrome. 
the point being, right, high expectations can cause all of these issues. And, and you know, a very simple step is to try to convert them into goals. There, there can be more complexity to that. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that is, is by far the most common issue that I see. So let's talk a little bit about unrealistic expectations, too, because one thing that I know Justin and I have seen over the years is when people get started out with our trading system, uh, they they expect to make money right off the bat. I know when we, when I was part of MarketSmith, uh, we, we hear people would sign up for a trial. It's like, I'll give it a month to see if I make money. It's like pe- people don't understand that this is this is a really kind of a lifelong process of you, you're learning not to make the big mistakes first. And then over a number of years, after you go through a few cycles, now you're starting to wrap your head around these concepts. And that's the huge reason why pe- most people will quit after a year or two on this. Talk a little bit about that. I mean, th- that's really kind of going into what you were saying, but um, but it is kind of a little bit different though too, because they have completely unrealistic expectations that this could be an eight to 10 year process to really start getting a hang of it. Yeah, I mean, overconfidence is is a massive issue in Western society in general, right? <laughs> you know, 70, 80% of people believe they have above average intelligence and right. IQ and sense of humor, yeah. right? So you kind of take that and then you see, right, how easy it seems to make money in, in the markets, right? We don't really hear about all the stories of failure. <laughs> yes. It doesn't really yeah. sell very well, you know, from a media perspective, right? So you see these massive successes. And, and the other thing, too, is that, it's hard to kind of wrap your head around the idea that as a new trader, you're basically playing a PGA tour event. I mean, you're playing in the NFL, you're playing amongst these massive, um, you know, massively uh, skilled entities and people. And to think that you can compete without really doing much is like thinking that I could, I mean, maybe I'm more than others because I'm a plus one, but you know, can walk out on the PGA tour and, and compete with the pros. I mean, it's, it's just, completely illogical when you actually think about it in those terms, but people have these wishes. I mean, why, why are there so many people who play the lottery every day, right? There's sometimes a very strong attachment to fantasy, right? To believing that you could uh, make that kind of money. And it's not necessarily about like the actual money that you might make. It's about the fantasy. It's about the attachment to that. And, and a lot of times it comes from people being very dissatisfied with their current lot in life the current situation, it could be, it could just be even be emotional, not even like factual, right? In, in reality terms, like they've been successful in other areas of their life, but they, you know, worked for somebody else. And now it's like, now it's time for me to make it on my own. And, you know, trading is where it's going to be. And so there's just a, a dissatisfaction that, you know, kind of forces people to attach to that fantasy. And then, you know, unfortunately, like a lot of lottery winners, like a lot of NFL athletes uh, or, or basketball players, you know, 70 to 80 percent of them are broke within three to five years of retirement or after winning the lottery. So, you know, traders kind of fall on that hill as well, even uh, not not kind of getting that far along. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're, you're talking a lot about the psychology aspects here. And, and I mean, of course, that's your focus. But um, is it all about psychology? I mean, if you just figure out the psychology part, are you then automatically a successful trader? Absolutely not. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, I know that there are people that believe that. Um to me, the psychological element is something that kind of waxes and wanes. It goes up and down in terms of its relative importance. You know, so you have to have real skill in this game, right? There's a reason why the Dalai Lama is not a great trader, you know, even if he were to be, right? You know, best, perhaps, you know, most emotionally meant, uh, you know, person on the planet 
is not going to uh, be successful as a trader until he's actually able to learn, you know, how to make uh, good decisions, how to read charts, how to, uh, you know, properly understand the indicators and, and when there is opportunity and how to properly risk management. You, you guys all know all that, those pieces, but, you know, the psychological piece comes in as you start to look at where your trouble spots are, where, where are the emotions that are kind of popping up uh, in reaction to certain situations. And sometimes those emotions are still a byproduct of the fact that you're still not actually good enough. You know, one of the traders that I talk about in, in the fear chapter of the book, right out of the gate, you know, he experienced a lot of hesitation and doubt at the moment of, of kind of entry. And, and it was kind of paralyzing. And, and, you know, we, I kind of realized after our third session that really what it was is he just wasn't good enough. You know, he, he was, you know, been, had been training for two or three years at that point, but in these particular types of setups, his system was not systematized enough. And, and so he needed to actually look at what, what that doubt was sort of expressing. What was that hesitation really about? And when he took the time over several weeks, writing out specifically what it, it was all about, his system actually became more systematized and the fear went away. So, you know, sometimes the fear can just be a, a, a signal that you're actually not very good. But as we get farther along in the game, right, then you sort of develop these performance flaws. Then you sort of can see, all right, well, yes, I actually have a lot of skill, but I'm not able to execute with the consistency and the proficiency that I want or certain market conditions I'm not able to trade as well or certain setups I'm not able to trade as well. And so that sort of advanced work is something that, you know, happens as we get, you know, kind of three or four years in. The only other thing I would say is that for newer traders, right, you're not sort of helpless in all this, right? You can still work on your mental game. A lot of it's going to come in terms of how you work, right? The way that you're working efficiently and having good focus and dedication and commitment to your process and actually getting better. Number one. Number two is you can look at the types of issues that may have existed for you in other performance environments. So whether that be at work or in sports or in dramatic arts or in school, you know, if you've had, uh, you know, issues of uh, procrastination or of fear, uh, you know, dealing with those types of issues in advance, like kind of concurrently as you're learning the skills of a trader can save you a lot of pain because they are going to show up. The reason that so many issues show up in trading that they don't necessarily show up elsewhere is because trading puts people under pressure in ways that they don't experience anywhere else, right? Trading is not like a nine to five job where your salary is kind of guaranteed, right? I mean, it's more like, you know, an NFL athlete who's, uh, you know, or maybe like a golfer, right? You don't get, you don't get, get paid unless you perform. So you're not a nine to fiver. You're, you're a professional performer as a trader. And so, you know, the only other way to create an equivalency of this would be if you went to your corporate job and if you performed poorly that day, you lost money. Yeah. I mean, imagine so, you know, scrap, you know, kind of the perception of the past and really, you know, look more pragmatically about the kind of emotions that, that react in trading because they are going to be intense. And also, a lot of this with trading or really with any kind of endeavor, but especially with trading, because you are balancing the skill and psychology, it's nonstop kind of analysis. Now, it's not like every day you have to do it, but at least once a year or every quarter, you need to be kind of taking a step back, looking at, okay, right. how are your signals doing? And more importantly, how are your emotions and how, how are you doing from kind of a psychological level? I mean... Quarterly, yearly for your for your trading indicators, sure. But I think from an emotional standpoint, it really needs to be like weekly at a minimum. Okay. The people that really are doing it well, they add that element to their sort of daily 
uh, you know, kind of cool down their, their kind of post-market analysis. They're just assessing their own mental and emotional performance. And they're looking very pragmatically at the problems that appear today. Because, you know, sometimes traders think that like what I do is really only for the beginners or the ones that are kind of trying to make it. But I've worked with institutional firms, with people making incredible sums of money. And they're the ones that are the most ruthless, right? They're the ones who, who we, we spend an hour pouring over the minute details of why they thought X when they should have been thinking Y or why they were confused here or were figuring out how to get them to tap into their intuition more. Th- this is an ongoing game, right? Yes. It's a mental game. It's yep. not about like psychology feels too static. Mindset feels too static. Like you can just wake up one day or get the right idea and suddenly you're going to have it. You can't have it just like trading because there's a constant evolution. And at any point in this game, if you're not aware of your weaknesses, if if you're not aware of the ways that you can be improving, uh, you're you're missing out, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, Jared, this is a lot of food for thought. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, So where where can people kind of find more information? Uh, I I know you have the books. Uh, can, Can you talk a little bit about those books or where they can kind of get more information on what it is you do and how they can improve their mental game? Sure. Yeah. So uh, jaredtendler.com is my website. I've got a lot of free resources uh, on there, including a, a free intuition ebook and a bunch of worksheets that can be used along with the system. Uh, the Mental Game of Trading is available everywhere. Um, you know, Audible, uh, Amazon, softcover ebook, basically wherever you get books, you can you can find it there. Uh, my other two books are on poker, uh, The Mental Game of Poker, which is kind of the equivalency of, of the trading book. It's It was written 10 years apart, so it's sort of a big, big upgrade. Um, originally, I kind of I actually kind of got into trading because a lot of traders started picking up the poker book a couple years in, and said, "Hey, look, you just changed the word trading to uh, poker to trading. You got another book." And yeah, I'm not really kind of <laughs> of that type. So I spent three years writing this one. But the mental game of poker two is really all about the zone and tapping into intuition, improving decision making. So, you know, traders actually can pick that book up and and use it to kind of enhance uh, their A game in a sense. Um, and I'm also fairly active on Twitter. So at Jared Tendler is uh, you know kind of where I'm most active on social media. Oh, that's wonderful. So uh, hopefully people can check that stuff out because I think that there's really a lot of food for thought. And again, as you said, it's really about uh, kind of getting your performance to that next level. Sometimes it's that high performance where the stakes sometimes get a lot larger that it can be the most uh, critical for you to get that mental game in place. So exactly. thanks again for coming on, Jared. We really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Enjoyed it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, when we come back from the break, uh, Arush and I are going to be talking about the market. So stay tuned for that. This podcast is sponsored by the Smart ETF's Smart Transportation and Technology ETF, symbol MOTO. Information is available at smartetfs.com slash MOTO, Foresight Fund Services, LLC distributor. Okay, welcome back to Investing with IBD, sponsored by Smart ETFs. Uh, it's time to kind of take a look at the market, and it has not been pretty lately. Arusha, uh, where do you want to start? I, I think you said it all there with your introduction. <laughs> Just... I know. We, we, I was just thinking while you were you were giving that little intro uh, that maybe we should just kept Jared on here because <laughs> exactly you know, who wants to talk about the market? This in, segment in might way. be short. Exactly. <laughs> market now, bad. Next question. Yeah, exactly, and that that's a key. That the market is bad right now. This is this is the time where you want to uh, be cautious and and play defense. Uh, mm-hmm. The market is in a correction. Uh, IBD put it in a correction yesterday, uh, and today really kind of validated that move. Uh, 
we we were up a little. We were we, I think we gapped up this morning maybe by like uh, half a percent. We're kind of going positive and negative the whole day, but by the yeah. end of the day, we closed right at the bottom of the range. Uh, the I have the we have the Nasdaq up uh, on, on the the charts here in the Mark Smith charts and starting to get further below the 200 day. If, you, if I switch over to the S and P, the S and P was kind of the hope, the the, the great hope, because the Nasdaq has been in trouble for a little while. Right. But the S and P, with the especially with the energy stocks and the financial stocks, they were doing okay. Uh, it was holding but, above the fifty day line at least. Yes, exactly. Uh, Until but it today, wasn't. <laughs> yeah, today it's starting to starting to break a little bit, and you you, you know a, a visit uh, for the S and P five hundred, a visit down to the two hundred day. Isn't out of the question now. You know, mm-hmm. before it's like, oh, maybe that that's a pretty far drop. Uh, but we saw with the Nasdaq, it touched and tested the 200 day uh, a week and a half ago, and we got a little bit of a bounce. But that was the first time it touched the 200 day since the you know March 20 of 20. But looking at the S and P, it, it didn't seem likely that it would do that. That if the market was able to kind of find its footing, but now, I don't know. I mean, we're starting to see more and more groups, more and more stocks start to fall apart. Right. And and part of the problem has been that, you know, the indexes just weren't showing this destruction that we were seeing in a lot of the individual stocks. You know, we kept on yes. talking about how, how strange it was that we had only 20% or less sometimes of the stocks above their 200-day moving average line, which... I mean, that's just like if you if you can't even get above your 200 day moving average line, it's like what what used do we have for you? But, you know, when you know only 20 percent of stocks were above that and, and it, the number just kept on getting worse. Uh, it was amazing how long yeah. the number of stocks below their 50 day, below their 200 day moving average lines, how long that persisted, even when the Nasdaq and S&P 500 were potentially getting to new highs. But uh, if we could go maybe go back to the, the Nasdaq composite and let's take a look at some of the support levels you know so you mentioned you know january 10th we we kind of tested the 200 day so yes. uh, for those of you looking at the uh, video you can kind of see where arush is pointing um we we bounced up from that and it looked like okay maybe maybe this is okay but then here we are at the 10 day moving average line the 21 day moving average line and we got resistance, you know, could, couldn't even get to those levels before it got turned away. Now we're back below the 200 day line, undercut the January 10th low. We undercut, you know, the, I mean, the, the, the December 15th follow through day that got undercut a while back. Yeah. Now we've undercut that October 14th follow through day. Uh, we undercut that yesterday. Oh, wow. um, okay. That follow through day was, was looking very powerful, you know, when it happened. Um, and now that's been undercut. So what do you think? What's the next level that you would expect this to get support, or do you even care at this point? Are you just like I'm? I'm not doing anything. I'm not looking. I'm not building expectations into this. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's kind of a little bit of both because I'm I'm mainly in cash, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm you know I'm, I'm you know it's funny when when I'm in cash and and uh, especially on the sidelines. Yeah, uh, I'm kind of hoping for the market to get really bad. You just because... say burn, baby, burn, right? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah, I'm fine, but uh, and I want. You know, we've always talked about you, you. We want corrections to be part of the market cycle again. They mm-hmm. haven't been part of the market cycle for uh, essentially a decade. Um, but you want some good two to three month 
corrections because that's where it's going to really provide the opportunity. So the the first kind of support area is that around the 14,200 level, which mm-hmm. will line up towards the the top of the trading range that was created back in during the spring and summertime right. of uh, 2021 and that we emerged out of and then we had a decent rally. So that's re- around that area, that's your first support er- uh, support. Uh, and it wouldn't be a surprise to me that it, if it found support there. Uh, so, so that's that's the first thing I'm thinking. Now, going back to y- your comments about how many stocks are below the 200-day and the 50-day moving average, uh, that the fact that that's been like that for months and months, mm-hmm. it kind of gives me hope uh, that for a number of these growth stocks, a lot of these growth stocks have been going through bear, a bear market for the last six, seven months. Right. So if the market starts to crack, if those stocks, those big large cap stocks are finally starting to crack, which is you know, helping bring the indexes down, maybe we're starting to get closer to the end of this kind of stealth bear market then it's just a kind of a beginning of a bear market. Now, maybe you have a, a pretty swift sell-off and it gets really, really scary over the next couple of months. But if that's the case, and a lot of these stocks that have already gotten hit, some of them are down like 70 80%. If they start to find bottoms, if a lot of these other stocks start to build bases, maybe in a few months, three to six months or so, maybe you start building, uh, building enough bases to have the next great bull market. Mm-hmm. And I guess one of the issues is, as, as you said, we re- really haven't had corrections last too long. I mean, yeah. even the COVID crash, yep. I never would have guessed that that would have you know, bounced back as quickly oh, yeah. as it did. Um, you had uh, back in, in the fourth quarter of 2018, you had kind of that Fed issue going on. Um, and there was, there was a little bit of a bear market there. But even that only lasted uh, a couple of months. And then it seemed like we were you know, back you know, back to the races and, and everything. So I guess for a while, it seems like people have been kind of trained to the, the, the buy on the dip mentality. And that, you know, if you, if you just wait a little while, then the market will correct itself and um, everything. But should there be kind of this fear that things could get worse? Yeah, I mean, you, you always have to you know, treat the markets as is, and you should always be very fearful when the markets, when IBD puts it into a correction, when there's a lot of distribution day, when you see a lot of leading stocks start to fall apart. And also when the, the NASDAQ is starting to get below the 200-day moving yeah. average. Um, so, so you definitely want to be fearful there. Now, the other thing that I think is a little bit different versus the 2018 and, and the 2020 uh, really quick type of corrections that we had uh, is that the, the Fed... And this 2018 was caused by this too, but the, the Fed is going to try to combat inflation mm-hmm. uh, and they're going to eventually raise rates two or three times this year, uh, potentially. Uh, and then also the rates are starting to rise. So it, it is a different kind of approach from the Fed this time around mm-hmm. versus from the Fed probably in the last 10 years or so. Because every right. time, the other times that they tried to do it, the markets would kind of sell off and then they would say, oh, we're kidding. We're not <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, right? but we didn't mean it. We didn't mean it. Yeah, <laughs> we, exactly. We're sorry. We're sorry. Uh, but this Just time around, the market go down. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of a stare off now, right? Yeah, between right. The, the market selling off and the Fed and the Fed's not blinking this time, yeah. which, is prob- which is the right thing to do because of 
I, th- their hands are tied too now, yeah. right? With I, I mean, with inflation going. getting to the levels that it was at the you know early '80s, you know, you, yes. you, you've got to do something, uh, right? So, um, and and you know. I guess to address one of the issues that some people bring up, you know, because, again, a lot of people feel like we've been on this tear really since 2009, um, you know, but as you were showing on the weekly chart uh, for the NASDAQ, you know, there there were these periods of kind of where where the market wasn't doing much. I mean, if you just look at the left-hand side of that chart, you know, that 2015, 2016, uh, mm-hmm. there was a lot of back and forth. It was really a correction through time. And it, it did hit 20%, but it was really hard to make a lot of progress during that time. You know, at, at least it was for me. And it wasn't really until, um, you know, 2016 uh, that seemed like there were more opportunities after, you know, February. So I guess the other part here, too, is, you know, before we get to doom and gloom, the there is a bright side to everything. You know, when the market does come out of this, the opportunities are, are tremendous. You know, yes. if, if you can just keep your powder dry, if you can keep on the sidelines. And that's why we a lot of times are kind of like of that mindset, burn, baby, burn, because it's like we know the opportunities that will come about from a correction. That's where all the bases get formed. Yeah, and, and the key is we're not going to ride the market down. We're not going to ride yeah. the stocks down. We're going to, we always manage our risk. We always respect risk, and we'll cut our losses. Now, going back to your 2015, 2016 uh, example, that that was a a stealth bear market too. So mm-hmm. I completely, I completely agree with you that the the indexes masked it, but underneath the surface, there's so many stocks that just got destroyed during that time. But it's set up 2016, and then we've had some really great opportunities since then. Uh, so these are op- the, a great opportunity will present itself. But yeah, we, we could be going through another stealth, stealth bear market. We have been going through, in my opinion, through a stealth bear market. But that being said, you know, as, if you respect your risk, if you have a plan in place, you just follow that plan and you're, you generally won't get into too much trouble if you really are cutting your losses. Yeah. So when we get back, uh, we will talk a little bit about some of the stocks on our radar. It's slim pickings out there, but stay tuned. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by the Smart ETF Sustainable Energy 2 ETF, symbol SOLR. Information is available at smartetfs.com slash SOLR, Foresight Fund Services, LLC distributor. Welcome back to the Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by Smart ETFs. Uh, it's Justin Nielsen along with Arusha Pires, and we're going to try and find a few stocks that are at least holding up a little bit better. It's, uh, as we mentioned on, in the market segment, it's a little bit of slim pickings out there. And just before we start, make sure that you don't think that uh, it's it's something where you have to be trading. You know, one of the things you have to be avoiding is that over trading, uh, trying to make money when the market is just not there for you uh, and, and, and bring that win to your sales. So um, Arusha, any, anything that you want to add before we start looking at some stocks? I, I think the, the best thing for most people to do is uh, be more on the sidelines. Yeah. Now, if you're, up, if you're up on positions and you, you want to hold them for the long term and, and you, you have some good gains on it, fine. Right. Uh, but if you're down on positions, right, if you're down more than the 8%, 10%, uh, you you really want to consider cutting those losses and waiting for a, a better day because you don't want to let those 10% uh, losses turn into 20, 30, 40%. Uh, we would always get these questions or I would always get these mm-hmm. questions like, 
I, I, I know you're, you, and we talked about this last week too, but I, I know I, you guys always talk about cutting your losses, keeping losses small, but I'm down 50%. What do I do now? We don't know. No one knows <laughs> right. at that point. Um, yeah. I've been there. That, that's how I learned all these rules uh, of why you have to cut losses. And I ended up selling them down 70, 80%. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it kind of freed me, and I took that and put it in other stocks when the markets were back in uptrends again because I learned those lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, so no, no one knows at that point what to do. Uh, so you, you want to make sure you go through your whole portfolio uh, because maybe we're back into uptrends by the next week, but and that'll be great, and and we'll have egg on our faces. But we're not trying to predict here; we're just interpreting yeah. the action day by day. And Justin and I both know that there are times where these things get really bad yeah. i don't know if it'll happen this time around but we i what i the way i always approach it is i'm always all these rules i the reason i follow them is because i want to avoid those portfolio destroying events that right. are so hard to recover from uh and once you experience it and then you see how long it takes it to recover from you yeah. learn to respect that risk yeah. And I mean, me personally, I, I hate losing money. You know, I hate seeing, you know, gains go away. I hate, you know, and and you have to kind of just know your own personality, know where uh, for if you are holding any stocks. Let's say you have a stock and you have a good gain on it. You know, you've got to expect in a market environment like this, you're going to take a drawdown. You should still have a line in the sand somewhere, you know, yes. because if you don't have a line in the sand anywhere and you're just like, it'll come back eventually, you could be sitting on something for a very, very long time with no progress, and then that's just dead money, and it's not doing anything for you. So, uh, except taking mental capital and you know potentially causing those emotional uh, you know decisions or um, you know things to away from you, as as Jared was describing. So let's talk a little bit um, about some of the stocks. Uh, one stock that I still do own, and the reason why I own it is because it's still working, is Arch. Uh, it's Arch Resources, A-R-C-H is the ticker symbol. Um, look, I'm not normally a big commodity player. And I, I just saw the setup here, the cup with handle, um, you know, bought that, you know, uh, when, when, it, when it broke out, um, you know, kind of a little bit underneath the traditional buy point, uh, kind of did a little bit of a, a cheat there. And it's still, it's still holding up, uh, but it's not, I mean, today, today it was up, but it was not up as much, it didn't close at its highs, it was certainly lost a lot of ground. So what's what's your take on coal? Uh, again, it's not the normal growth industry that we <laughs> that we look at, but uh, do, you, do you play any of these? Yeah, I, once in a while I will play these. I, I don't have any right now, um, but I, I, I think the key is I'll play them. Mm-hmm. Uh, where if I see a trade, I'll take that trade and I'll probably be quick to get out of it too. Yeah. Both, I'm definitely cut my losses, but even to the upside, if I'm up 10 plus percent, uh, 15 percent, it's so much easier for me to take these gains versus right. a, a stock that I have a lot of conviction in. Uh, so, so something like this, you, you said it, Justin, it, it had a really good technical setup. Uh, it, it's this is the type of price and volume action that you want to see in stocks. Now, it, it just it just happens to be we're in a bad market right now, and this is in a sector that's not, generally not the sectors we play or really try to get into. But this is these stocks are being accumulated. A nice breakout. It's acting well after the breakout. Uh, going and looking at the just a normal cup, it's just a nice U-shaped cup. When you look at the volume, there's more accumulation going on there. It had a strong prior uptrend, 
relative strength line is trending well. Uh, so it has everything that you want to see from a technical action. And so, yeah, it's hard to argue against anyone who owns this stock and they're up on it that they should, uh, you know, that they should sell because of a marketing correction. You don't have to. You're, you're up on it. You're right on the stock. Um, and so you can uh, try to let that run a little bit more if you want to. Yeah, but you know I, exactly as you said. That's the way I kind of treat this. I'm I'm not looking for a uh, a double here. You know, yeah. uh, I'm not looking for a hundred percent gain on this. If if I get a gain, it's um, great, and I, I you know I added a little bit to my portfolio, but um, it's it's not it's not a swing for the fences. This is this is a single for me. Um, yeah, and I I mean I switched over to the the weekly chart here. Uh, we're we're getting the blue dot uh, mm-hmm. on the with with Market Smith here. And how many? It's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. This it's already eight weeks in a row. Up, yeah. Right. And maybe this is going to be the ninth week in a row. Up. So there's some good accumulation going on with the stock. Now it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to keep going up, but this is acting pretty well. And I could easily see a pullback here that kind of yes. creates a handle and uh, uh, on on the on the weekly chart, and that would be very normal. So again, I have to kind of look at that and say, how much room am I going to give it? You know, I, I don't want this to I don't want this to turn into a loser. So what what what's that line in the sand? Um, yeah, and then Justin, I'll ask you a question here. With with commodity stocks, one thing that I've found is that, and I've learned this the hard way, and I'm trying to kind of get out of this, but I'm trying to treat commodity stocks a little bit different, even just from a, a trading perspective versus growth stocks and trying to force myself not to buy commodity stocks into strength mm-hmm. versus growth stocks, right? I'm trying to look more to buy commodity stocks on pullback. So pullback, if there is a pullback in the arc resources and it builds a handle on the weekly chart, how do you approach uh, commodity stocks? Are you are you just same kind of thing? Doesn't matter what type of stock it is, or are you do you have kind of different entry points for different types of stocks? Well, I, I'd I'd say that right in this market environment, it's not just commodity stocks that I've been trying to do pullbacks more on yeah, because yeah. this this whole year, or I guess I should say 2021, um, really did feel like a lot of breakouts uh, would would often struggle. Um, you know, I, I felt this way in 2017 to a degree where it, it, it there were these very short, very mild pullbacks for the most part. The buy on the dip mentality was strong. And as a result, if you were buying into strength, a lot of times it was just it was just frustrating. You know, I, I, I've shared before, I didn't have a great 2017. I, I didn't beat the indexes that year. And I was frustrated because a lot of times I was just a little bit out of sync because I was swing trading and um I think for people that held more in 2017, I think they did uh, better in a lot of cases because if you were trying to do breakouts, uh, it was it was the pullbacks. That's where it was at. Or holding through, and you know, at the end of the year, a lot of those things were were doing just fine. Um, so speaking of commodity stocks, let's go ahead and take a look at an ETF XLE. Now it seems like a lot of our guests have been talking about XLE as well. Um, you know, and, and, and some are like, you know, I don't do commodities all. Some are like, well, this is what's working. Um, XLE has certainly been one of the standouts this year. I mean, if you look at if you look at the industry groups, one of the things I did um, over the weekend, uh, actually the last two weekends, was I look at the industry groups and I did a sort by percent change year to date. And that just tells you, OK, just for the year, you know, we're, we're only a few weeks in. But just for the year, what what stands out? And it was mm-hmm. all 
oil and gas industries. I mean, I, that that held the top six spots in terms of year-to-date percentage change. And XLE is definitely showing a lot of strength still. For as much as the market's been rough, this has been going very counter to what the market's been doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I just pulled up the year-to-date on Marketsmith for XLE. It's up fit almost 16%. Mm-hmm. And and we're only like two three weeks into the <laughs> into the year, so it, it's been a very very powerful run. And Mark Minervini was on IVD Live today. I think he brought he brought this one up too. Yeah. And and yeah, he showed where he bought, it, and that was the perfect type of entry. It was on the the thir- January third, where it just got back above mm-hmm. the the fifty day moving average. You had your little chi entry there, and and since then it's been this uh, rocket ship. Up, you know, up that sixteen percent. Uh, so, so yeah, this is just perfect, perfect action right here. Now it's way extended at this point, so you have to right. wait for a pullback. But you can you can see on the price action up sixteen percent, not too many or fifteen percent. It's not not too much uh, going, uh, not too much outperforming that uh, in the stock market at this point. But look at that relative strength line too. It's just just a <laughs> a really sharp angle to to the upward to the right. Yeah, and even the down days are not nearly down as much as the market. So uh, that just lets the relative strength get even more powerful. Um, one thing that is important, you know, I, I this is a very liquid ETF. This is a, one of the sector spiders. You know, sector spiders have, there's 11 sectors for the S&P 500 that they track, um, and they have an ETF for each one of them. But it's always important that you kind of understand what what's driving that performance. And what you need to understand about XLE is it's got, two big heavyweights in there. ExxonMobil, XOM is the ticker symbol there. Um, that is uh, over a 20% weight. And then CVX, Chevron, is over a 20% weight. So you look at these two stocks, which look very similar to XLE, yes. and the, these two together are over 40% of the performance of XLE. So um, realize, you know, what, what, what does your diversification look like? Well, in this case, it's not like it's spread evenly amongst the oil and gas. Uh, it's it's really concentrated in those two stocks. Yeah, and and I pulled them both up on a weekly chart, and technically they are both acting very very well and and looking stronger than they've looked in years. Um, so so there's there's a, there's a lot going on with both these stocks, and they're both being accumulated, and you're seeing it both in in both of these stocks and also the XLE. Yeah. So just to wrap up this conversation, let's go ahead and take a look at one more stock. And uh, lo and behold, it's another commodity stock, Antero Resources. Um, This is more in the natural gas. That's where they're uh, doing a lot of their stuff in the Appalachians um, Basin. So this is one that looks like it's potentially setting up. Natural gas has been an area of strength, too, as these commodities have been looking strong. So this one isn't, you know, uh, nearly as strong as the others, uh, other two that we just looked at. It hasn't gotten to new high ground yet. But what is your take um, on this one? I still think it's acting well. I, you're right. I, this is a little bit more of a laggard versus a number of the other energy stocks. But that being said, because there, there, there have been plenty of times, especially the energy uh, sector, there have been times where I missed out on like kind of the, the first tier. And then I see the second tier that are still building bases. I'm like, oh, those are probably laggards. And they end up doing really well, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so energy is one of those areas because they're tied to the commodity, tied to oil, where a lot of these stocks are going to travel well if oil keeps doing well. Uh, and so you have that strong prior uptrend. It's working on a cup-like uh, type of base here. And 
uh, it get, it almost formed like a little smaller uh, lower entry uh, key entry point here where that that was from last week where you could have bought it and you might be only you were up good amount on this and now you're you're uh, essentially flat on it uh, right now but that being said it we the AR could be just building the handle at this point. Uh, and uh, maybe it tests around that 50-day right now. It's, it's right around the 21-day. But uh, if this is a handle within a couple of the handle, the buy point's going to be right around 21 um, on this out of kind of the traditional couple of the handle. But it is acting well. It's coming back on lower volume. The relative strength line is improving. And so if oil keeps doing well, I would expect this one to... Uh, you know, start to try to break out of kind of a traditional cup with handle. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's important to note that look, you don't have to you don't have to try and anticipate that. You know, you yeah. can let you can let these stocks come to you. Let them prove themselves. Let them get to those levels that you know. If if it's strong enough to get there, uh, so many people get impatient and they like, oh, well, I, I don't have much of anything, and I, I hardly you know, I sold a lot of stocks, and my exposure is low. And if if we bounce here, I'm not going to be participating. And so sometimes they're like, well, this this looks like it's on its way. Let me just get it here at a lower price. Why not get it cheaper? And sometimes it's it's not about getting the the lowest price. It's about getting the best price. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, a lot of times you want to when you buy, you want to make money pretty quickly. That's the way we look at it. You, we don't want to be tied up in a stock that's just going sideways for a long time. I switched uh, over to a weekly chart, and it's not necessarily a surprise that the stock ran up to twenty one twenty two. And, and pulled back during this kind of cup formation that it's been working on for the last couple of months because there, there is some good resistance around that area. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it's, it might take a little bit of time for it to test that 21, 22 area because uh, when you pull back and look at this on a weekly chart, it's coming, uh, it, it really is getting to some pretty key resistance. And let me just take a quick look at the, the monthly. Yeah, so at, it, I mean, this at one time was trading over $60 back at in 2014 and so it, it's trying to it's trying to just slowly move up there and it's it's overhead supply that we don't necessarily it's not as significant anymore but that being said it is resistance that um still can slow down the stock yeah and and you know what i'm just showing that monthly chart it just kind of reiterates um you know i'm sure there were a lot of people as that was trading at 20 thinking it can't go any lower yeah you know and uh they, they were proven wrong so be careful out there. Uh, that'll do it for us today. Uh, really appreciate you all watching. Um, make sure to go check out Jared Tendler's books and uh, you know, check out his his website and blogs. Uh, really interesting stuff on there. And next week, we're going to have Lisa Chai back on the show. She is an analyst from RoboGlobal. Uh, we really love having the RoboGlobal folks on because there's so many interesting technologies and uh, things that they talk about. It's, it's, it's almost like my sci-fi fix. So we're looking oh, yeah. forward to having They're her right. on <laughs> again. So uh, make sure you tune in for that but that'll do it for us thanks a lot for being here again arusha as always and we'll see you next week make sure to go to investors.com podcast where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section and make sure to subscribe rate and review our podcast if you haven't already we'd really appreciate it you can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. Hey everyone, thanks so much for watching Investors Business Daily on YouTube. If you want to watch more videos, make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss a thing.